You're listening to Resurrection South Austin, a community of faith, learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at resaustin.com. Let us begin. So a really helpful storyline to keep in your minds as we begin this liturgy tour is the story of Exodus. Does everyone, you recall parts of the Exodus story? Israel, God's people, they are held captive in Egypt, and they are crying out for God's help to be set free from captivity. Um, There is a night, the night of Passover, in which uh, we read the deliverance of God's people is underway, and God's people have been set free from captivity in Egypt and delivered through this pretty dramatic course of events, through a large body of water, into a wilderness that takes 40 years to finally arrive at this land of promise. This Exodus story is actually the story that is kind of like a template overlaid in the room, in the furniture, in the way we use our bodies, the words we use, the images we see. If you think Exodus through the entire thing, it's kind of an interpretive key for us that'll help you tell the story. So why are we beginning in the lobby then? Well, because if this is the Exodus story, uh, where does it begin? In Egypt. So we are standing in Egypt. We are, and Egypt has nice coffee, uh, it has air conditioning apparently. But this is the place in which as those who are God's people are coming into the presence of God, we're kind of coming from a place of captivity in our own lives. If you think back to the time when you met Jesus, you found out about who Jesus was and that he was going to rescue you, when you heard the gospel and you responded to that, remember where you were. That was Egypt in so many ways. And every Sunday we get to, before we remember our baptism or the Red Sea, we get to remember where God has found us and where he's gathering us from in Egypt. So as we begin uh, here, we're going to move to the baptismal font, which is this little uh, uh, bowl of water. Um, And I'm going to explain some more things for you uh, there as well. But I want you to, uh, even when you're coming in in the morning, There are, you may not remember all this and that's okay. Sometimes the best time to remember uh, this movement that's happening in the liturgy is when you see the processional party, the people who are the acolytes with the cross and the gospel book, um, you can remember, oh, that's right. There is, we are the people of God in procession. All of you are actually with us, even though you're seated. You're all with us in procession from Egypt um, through the Red Sea into the wilderness and onto the land of promise. So that's kind of uh, the idea there. Um, Some of the things that you'll see in the procession before we go in, you'll see uh, the procession is led by what? Does anyone remember? Who goes first? The cross. cross. And on some of these like high feast days when we want to smoke the place out, it's the thurifer, the thurible, the smoke, the incense. So yes, the cross. And on, on other days, high holy days, we have a pillar of smoke and a pillar of fire leading us out of Egypt through the Red Sea into the wilderness. Sometimes a little bit bigger of a pillar of smoke, sometimes less, nevertheless. But you see that that was one of the things that actually God led his people with out of captivity in Egypt into the wilderness was through a pillar of fire and a pillar of smoke. Um, this, this incense is also in scripture. You, there's a, a few places where it's actually like, wow, it is apparent that God enjoys incense, that it's pleasing to him. It's this symbolic lifting up of the prayers of the saints, this offering that's a sweet fragrance to him. Um, and in Malachi 1.11, you have this. And, it, and most people uh, would be, I think, shocked, like the scriptural warrant for incense. Malachi 1.11, in every place incense is offered to my name and a pure offering for my name is great among the nations. Even in the Old Testament temple, incense smoked out the place. And some of those, um, see you guys later, some of those most dramatic moments in the temple when God's presence was most uh, like uh, realized, often what was accompanied with that was Smoke, right, was incense, was that kind of cloudy mystery presence of God. In uh, Revelation 8.3, we see another thing along these lines. Another angel with a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given a great quantity of incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar that is before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints, and there's kind of what that symbolizes, rose before God from the hand of the angel. And in other translations, it even um, talks about the Archangel Michael being instructed to put a large amount of incense on the golden censer, which I'm like, amen, let's load this thing up. So that's kind of what's involved in even the symbol of the smoke and of the incense that leads the procession. What comes next? The cross. We have the gospel book after that, the torches, 
um, that illuminate the gospel reading that are often accompanied with it as it processes, and then those uh, ministers in the liturgy who are assisting in conducting the service, like the acolytes and the deacon and the priests. And if we have a bishop present, the bishop will be following in that procession. Okay, let's go to the baptismal font together, can we? So what we have here is uh, the baptismal font. This water uh, comes from the back. It is regular old water that has been prayed over. Every time we refill this water with those jugs, um, we take the prayer from the baptismal liturgy that gives thanks for water and asks God's spirit to come and bless this. And I, especially when I pray that this would be sacred water for us, I pray, God, would you, when people come in contact this, would they remember their baptism? Would they remember that you have redeemed them from slavery and sin and brought them into new life with Jesus? And so as you come in, just in practice, uh, I just want to encourage you, dip your fingers in there like this and make the sign of the cross and pray and say, Lord, help me remember that I am washed clean by the blood of your son and welcomed into your family. Um, that's something for us that uh, every week we can engage in that and you're welcome to do so. This water, this, this pool of water is... Um, the Exodus Red Sea moment. So you can see if Egypt is there, um, we are following Moses in this great procession of God's people into the wilderness. But before we get there, we are trapped uh, between a great watery grave and the enemies of God who wish to come and destroy God's people and take them into captivity. This is like an interesting place, isn't it? Don't we find ourselves actually in this place like every week? Between a rock and a hard place or a watery grave and the enemies of God being kind of pinned in this moment, that is exactly the moment that we are invited to remember our baptism. It's not just like this ritual thing that we only do on Sunday, but you can all week say, I remember that I've been saved through the waters of baptism, through the Red Sea. And in this Red Sea, something miraculous has happened. This isn't ordinary water, but just as in the creation when God's spirit came close to the water and hovered over it, brooding over the waters of creation, and God spoke, and there was. Then in the Red Sea, uh, God, through uh, his might, divided the sea. He made a way where there didn't seem to be a way for God's people to be saved. And even in the Red Sea, we see this early type, this figure of what we would understand baptism to be later on. And in fact, can I just take a side journey here? The reason um, infant baptism is difficult for people to come around to the idea I think has more to do with uh, the way they interpret baptism in the Bible. I think if you approach baptism in the Bible, incorporating all of its images, including the Red Sea and the waters of creation, which if you pay attention during the baptism liturgy, they're all present there. If you incorporate all that, you get this picture that God is, act like baptism has way more to do with God's action on us than it does with like, the pride of our decision and wisdom that we have finally determined that this is going to happen. But it's actually God grabbing us and inviting us into his presence. We do need to cooperate with that. And we do need to come to a place where we can understand that. But for infants, can you imagine in the Red Sea, facing the Red Sea, mothers saying, well, you need to decide if you're going to go through the Red Sea, but we're not going to take you. You decide. To me, that's like what's really interesting about infant baptism being such an intellectual endeavor or a cognitive thing, like you need to get to a place where you can decide for yourself if you want to leave Egypt and come into the wilderness with God's people. I think that's kind of strange, especially when you have this image of the Exodus at play there. There's a little bit more for us to wrestle with about what is baptism. So we come to the water. It's been divided for us. Later on um, from this Old Testament type, we see that this is being fulfilled in the person of Jesus, who he himself goes in, wades into the Jordan River. Uh, John says, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There he is. Um, he comes to John to be baptized, not because he needs to be washed of sin, but he's kind of water in, the, in Jewish imagination is kind of the womb of creation. And so Jesus entering into the water is in, in some way actually um, sanctifying all of creation, entering into its womb, sanctifying, purifying it, and, uh, and redeeming it. And he invites us into that same water that he has sanctified, that he has gone before us in and invites us into that baptismal life with him. And he says, you should do this also to us. It's one of the things he commands us to do. So in our baptism, Paul gives us super clear kind of theological perspective of what this means. We are being united with, sorry, let me back up. Red Sea, waters of creation, Red Sea, Jordan River. Ultimately, this baptismal water is all pointing to something, which is the cross of Jesus his death, 
on the cross. So when you think of baptism, what's happening here is two actions. One, you're being united with the grave of Jesus in the tomb and being brought to life in his resurrection. That all happens in baptism. So many stories kind of all converging right here over this water. Um, we use this uh, pretty dangerous item to remember our baptism, that we're not just observing this thing that's happening to somebody else, but as the people of God, we too remember that we belong to Jesus and that has been won by Jesus in his grave and in his resurrection. Amen? That's good news. So remember your baptism, people. We're also, another way for us to uh, remember the Easter moment or that pillar of fire that leads us, that is the light of Christ in the wilderness, is this Christ candle. Um, we light this on, at the Easter vigil, which happens once a year, um, and we begin outside with a bonfire. And um, it's a really interesting it's kind of the, be it is the beginning in a lot of ways of this Exodus story because on Easter, we say on this night, we were redeemed from sin and slavery and led by Christ from darkness into light. The Easter vigil is that moment that, that uh, helps describe and locate that moment for us from darkness into light. And so you'll see this begins our entrance into the people of God and uh, the procession walks right past it. Now, uh, come with me a little bit further and I wanna... Take this one step further. We haven't even got to the beginning of the service, and the Exodus story is, like, capturing us, right? This is the story that we're in. So what, what would this place be? If that is Exodus, this is the Red Sea, that is the land of promise, where is the 40 years that we spend? The desert wilderness. The, in Hebrew, the mead bar, the in-between place. Not quite there not quite there, but somewhere in between in which we wander. Again, another super interesting place that locates where we actually live our everyday lives, isn't it? Between our, the, the, the thing that's been accomplished in our baptism and the total fulfillment, the telos, the fulfillment of all of God's purposes in the end of time, we are caught in this middle act of the play in which there are two things that should guide our actions and our lives and our language, everything about us. Two parts of the story, that we have been redeemed, that's been settled, that's done. And that we, our lives are aimed toward and guided toward this telos, this fulfillment in which God is welcoming all of creation, all people to his table. Those are the things that govern and guide us. Um, this is also the place in the service that you'll see in just a minute where we bring the gospel book to the center of the room. Why do we do that? Does anyone know why we do that? All the other readings are over there at the lectern but then the gospel comes out here. Why is that? Who said incarnation? Dang, all right, that's loaded. That's awesome. What in the world is the incarnation? The incarnation is um, the historic fact of God, the invisible God, the infinite, uncreated, without beginning, without end God, incomprehensible God, becoming comprehensible, taking on flesh and blood, becoming visible and physical, having teeth, having hair, entering into the human timeline in history, uh, and locating himself among his people. John 1.14. Do you guys know this passage? Uh, does anyone know this passage off the top of their head? Took on flesh, Jesus. God took on flesh and blood and dwelt among us. So the reason we read it here is actually in connection with that idea that Jesus isn't like somewhere special away from us, but he has in an uncomfortable way moved into the midst of our lives and dwells among us, locates himself right in the middle of all of the junk that you're dealing with, Jesus is there among you. He's, in scriptures, pitched his tent is the verb that's used there. Kind of the way that God pitched his tent in the tabernacle in the wilderness. In the same way, God took on flesh and blood and pitched his tent uh, among us to live with us. So that's kind of jumping ahead, but that's what this space is. Right here in the wilderness, um, God pitching his tent and being with us. There's also something here in the Exodus story um, that I'm gonna kind of jump ahead to. How did the people survive here? It wasn't an H-E-B. How do people live in the wilderness? What is this, right? Manna from heaven. Manna, man who means what is this? Manna is this basically this Hebrew word that's basically like, what in the world is this? It's this bread, this flaky stuff that literally came from heaven and landed in the wilderness for the people of God to eat. There's also quail, there's some meat, okay? But for you vegans, manna was here. How interesting. Does God give us bread from heaven here? Does the manna come to us? 
there is a strange connection between the incarnation. It's not even strange. Jesus comes out and says it. I, am, I mean, today, I am the bread which has come from heaven. That's me. The manna that you ate in the wilderness, you ate it and you died. But if you eat me, you'll never die. Jesus moves into our wilderness and feeds us with himself. Okay, great. Let's move on. Um, I think you all can... S- no, nah, stand up. Stand up. Why not? Come up here. Now, this next part used to be traditionally um, set aside for only, you guys can gather all around here, set aside only for priests. It was one of those prayers that we prayed in the back and no one heard about. Thomas Cramner, one of the, like the like kind of uh, earliest prayer book writer for the English tradition, the English Catholic tradition, kind of the founder of Anglicanism, some might argue. It's kind of weird to say founder because it just is for, way further beyond him. But one of the things that he did was he brought that colic for purity out of the sacristy, out of the vestry room where, where the priest would vest, and he put it in the middle of the service, right at the beginning, in fact, for the priest to pray, the celebrant to pray. And I love inviting the whole church to pray this together, actually. And so that's why we do that together. But I skipped something, not after we acknowledge who's present in the room by saying, blessed be God. Today I cheated and I said hello to you guys, but typically... I don't even acknowledge you first, which I think is really good for us, actually. But to say, friends, blessed be God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Can I just tell you why I think this is like one of the most critical things that we can say all week? Is because throughout our week, there are forces and temptations and other um, cultural moods, let's just say, that want to say, blessed be our salary. Blessed be um, our campaign of violence here or there. Blessed be our agenda in this or that place. Blessed be my career advancing. Blessed be the things I want to accomplish today. Blessed be my week so that I can have a weekend. We have all of these things that we want to say, this is what's sacred. This is what actually determines and orients all of my life. So for us to come here amidst a world that has different blessed bees to say, no, 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 no. Blessed be God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is an act of defiance. Only the people of God say that. It is running directly against the grain of so much of what our world is saying is blessed. And the kingdom we're living into. Right. This, this kingdom that we, this is what kingdom people say. This is actually the shape and the language of the kingdom. Blessed be God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You can see this throughout scripture, most notably 1 Peter 1.3. We acknowledge him and it's always an exchange. Um, do you notice that I'll always, I'll say something like, blessed be God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And you all will say, yeah, there we go. It's super important that you say those lines. And I'm trying to back off because I know this is new for a lot of us, but you're going to see in the next months that I'm not going to say your lines because they're your lines. So I'm going to say, blessed be God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And if you guys are like, you just did like, blessed be the now. It's going to be like, oh, people, let's do that again, right? I'm not going to step on your lines. These are your lines. The people have to respond. They have to engage in this proclamation that God is blessed, right? And blessed be his kingdom now and forever. Thank you. So we have that colic for purity, which I told you already kind of out of order that's, that comes here. Do you notice that when I come to this place and I acknowledge in you and I say, uh, Lord be with you, also with you. I say, let us pray. Do you notice that I turn my body like this? Does anybody notice that? Okay, why do I do that? Does anyone know why? Andrew? Because you're praying also. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not speaking to you. And a super, help, a super helpful signal for you and for me is to join you in prayer this way. Have you ever been in a prayer where you feel like people are just like preaching at you? And you're like, well, who are you talking to? This is a helpful way of me going, I need to remember, I'm not, I'm not just preaching. I'm not preaching yet. There'll be a time for that. But Lord, I, with your church, me as the poor soul who's being pushed out in front of the rest of the crowd in the presence of God, leading us in prayer. That's why I do that. So whenever I'm actually engaging in prayer, it's a helpful signal that I'm turning my back to you. Not because I don't like you, um, because this is actually not about you, but this is about the God that we're coming to in prayer. Um, the, next, what happens is this Gloria, this, this, that Nathan has put to music, glory to God in the highest, peace to his people on earth. You know that whole thing. Did you guys know this comes from the second century? That's pretty cool, isn't it? That we are singing the words 
that Christians in the second century were singing. Christians who were likely hiding or, in cap- or like trying to avoid being captured when it wasn't cool to be a Christian. I don't know if it ever has been. Um, we are joining in the language of these early Christians. Um, there's another thing that we can do at that time uh, where the glory usually is in different parts of the year, like the Kyrie. Kyrie eleison is what it's called. It's Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy, which um, I've heard someone say, I think this is true, is the distillation of all Christian prayer in a few words is Lord have mercy. What we're really saying, Lord have mercy. And there's also uh, the trisagion, which means three times holy. Holy God, holy immortal, holy, uh, how's it go? Holy God, holy, holy almighty, have mercy on us. Three times holy. You'll see either the Gloria or the Kyrie or the trisagion right here. And then after that, there is a collect, which is a super strange word or, or pronunciation of collect, uh, kind of like a collect call. And all that is, is a prayer during the service that kind of collects the themes of the day that we hear in readings and in their sermon um, and puts them to a concise prayer that the, the priest, the celebrant leads us in. That's the collect. Um, oh, sorry. Was, and it, some people, I think when they, one of their first interactions with a liturgy is written prayer is kind of tough. Like, shouldn't we just pray extemporaneously? You should totally do that. But um, even Paul says, man, we need to learn how to pray. And these written words actually help us to pray. Even in the early uh, church in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, you, you remember this? The de- they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers, the prayers. Interesting, isn't it? Even if it's not like the English collects, because that's not what they're talking about. It was the Psalms. It was written prayers that Jesus himself prayed. And so when we, for instance, pray the Psalms, we're praying the Psalms with Jesus, in light of Jesus, and like in his own righteousness, we can call upon the Father through Jesus. Isn't that amazing? All right, um, you can all have a seat now. Is that all right? I know you guys look kind of tired. It's all right. Alex, thank you. That's a great point. We, We pray the same thing as Anglicans throughout the globe. Isn't that pretty cool? And same thing, that's a great segue for scripture readings. This is still the liturgy of the word. So it's the liturgy of the word written, said, preached. We read in this lectionary, this calendar, um, a set of readings that correspond to a larger calendar that the rest of the church globally, Anglicans, Lutherans, Roman Catholics for the most part, and Methodists and Presbyterians. There's a whole, I mean, the majority of the, Ang- of the, of the Christian globe is, re- is literally on the same page of the Bible. I think that's pretty fantastic. One time I was, at, I was in Pasadena at Fuller Seminary, and I was getting some coffee. It was Monday morning, and this Brit came in and was putting creamer in his coffee next to me, and he said, how was church yesterday? I was like, I don't know who he is. I was like, it was wonderful. He says, how about those readings, though? And I happened to be going to an Anglican church, and I was like, they were amazing. What did you think about this? And we immediately, even though he was in England on Sunday, I was in L.A. at the time, we got to talk about the readings together and have this immediate fellowship over shared readings globally. That's super helpful. That's super interesting. Um, We already talked about that. The song. I didn't mention this. May your words be always on our minds, quick to my lips, and forever in my heart. Amen. Do you notice that when we uh, pray, or read the gospel readings, we're making the sign of the cross over our mind, our lips, and our heart? to correspond with those lyrics. That's actually what we're praying. So when you see people doing that, do it. Pray, Lord, I want your words. These, oh my gosh, these precious words of Jesus that we have. How do we have these words? It's amazing that the church has preserved and propagated this to be available to us. That is a miracle in and of itself. And now what we get to do with that is put them in our minds, on our lips, and in our heart. And so there's a moment for us to pray that God would make that possible for us. Um, I'm gonna mention two more things. Well, three more things. And then we're going to have some lunch and I'll take some questions while we eat. Is that okay? Okay. So preaching. Um, You notice that um, my sermons are like on a good day, like 18 minutes sometimes when it gets going, uh, a little bit longer, but it's a little bit shorter than many of the traditions we've come from. I know I'm aware of this. And this is because um, the task of preaching primarily, I think, and in the tradition isn't uh, a Bible study. Bible study is necessary, part of the Christian diet. We have to have that. But the homily is the task of taking the scriptures and showing them to the people and say, do you see this? Do you know the truth that is leaping off the page that you need to take to heart? Do you know who you are? This is what God wants to say to you today. To sit down, 
Fold that up, sit down, and say, Lord, help your people. That's the task of preaching, to proclaim the gospel in the word written. Um, there are so many super interesting things in scripture that we should go and then study. But there's a moment in the liturgy, the drama of the liturgy, that you have to kind of cooperate with. If I did a 45-minute sermon here that exposited every Greek verb, um, it would actually derail the movement, the drama of the liturgy. So preaching for me has changed in the liturgy because now I have to, um, I have to fit between the readings and the table. There's like an, an actual narrative at play that I have to cooperate with as the preacher, which is super helpful. And if I say anything that's like a little bit off tilt, a little bit unorthodox, you guys then stand up right away and say, here is the plumb line of Orthodox Christian faith. We're gonna say it all together in the creed just as a corrective to anything, but also to reaffirm this is actually what we believe. In case you missed the gospel, here it, is, here it is. Here's the story of our salvation in Jesus Christ. Creed comes from an old word meaning credo, uh, uh, credo meaning I believe that we stand and say together, literally taking a stand for our faith and announcing it together. The creed comes from, um, uh, the, the Nicene Creed that we recite comes from a council in 325. There's also the Apostles' Creed, which is a little bit shorter, comes in from 390. There's this Athanasian Marathon Creed that uh, it takes 30 minutes to say together that we sometimes say once a year on Holy Trinity Sunday that is like this obnoxiously long but super necessary exploration of Christology and like how it is that there's uh, three persons and one God. So uh, sometimes we bow out of that. You're welcome. Um, in all of these creeds, if you ever notice people bowing when it says he came down from heaven, we are reverencing the incarnation event with our bodies and saying, which is like the central mystery of all Christian faith, that God would come to us. Bowing with our bodies in the middle of this thing is a really helpful cue to pay attention and to realize, wow, God, I can't believe you did this for me. The least I could do is like bow out of total worship and reverence. And we stay bowed until he was uh, raised from the grave. You'll see people doing this. You don't have to do this. It doesn't like break the liturgy if you don't do that. But these, these ways with our body for us to engage with the things we're actually saying so that we're not just like watching this parade that goes by us as participants, but we're actually entering into the story, entering into the drama and inhabiting it in our own body. Though I don't know about you, but I need physical things to like wake me up in the middle of a routine that help me engage with the thing that I'm actually saying and meaning to say, right? So those bodily cues are really helpful for us. Um, we have the prayers of the people. Last couple things. Prayers of the people, someone gets up, we sing, um, that go through a whole list of, uh, a litany of things that we should be praying for, which is really helpful because we often forget to pray for the things that are brought up in prayers of the people. And by the way, if you don't know, we have a, a sheet of paper that you can fill out. If you have things we need to be praying for as a church, they will mention them from the lectern during a prayers of the people, um, which is this prayers of the people moment is a, an ancient Christian practice. But this prayer as the church is like more dangerous than nuclear material. And here's why. Because when we pray together in the prayers of the people, we are praying and standing in the righteousness of Christ who sits at the right hand of God the Father, who has his ear. We pray in his righteousness who have the ear of God the Father and say, Lord, would you make this happen? Here's what's on our hearts. That is like one of the most dangerous things a church can do is to stand together in the righteousness of Christ and intercede for others in the world. And then we come right before we enter into the holy of holies to the table, we come and confess our sins on our knees. And if you've never seen this, the reason we kneel um, I'll show you out here because this is how you kneel. Um, there, I, I teach people to, to kneel like this and not like this um, because honestly, this is really comfortable and doesn't really connect with the thing that we're actually doing. This is super inconvenient and it hurts, um, but it's actually a little bit more truthfully corresponding to the thing that we're doing, which is feeling the weight of our sin, putting ourselves humbly before God, putting the full weight of our body above our kneecaps, and taking a moment of silence to take inventory of all the stuff that we just didn't get quite right this week and say, Lord, this is uncomfortable. This is painful even, uh, but we want to come before you bare and humbly uh, reconcile with you before we come to your table. The priest stands and offers absolution. And the early church fathers say, this is where the priest stops talking and the Lord begins to speak directly to you. 
with his words of forgiveness, that your sins would be put away. So you wonder, like, does Sean have magical powers in absolution? No. The church has the power to loose and bind and has entrusted that to people that the church has deemed trustworthy and able to do that when it's appropriate. And for us, that's priests. And so you'll see priests who are kind of designated with these secret weapons of reconciliation to announce these like cosmically powerful words of Jesus to set people free from sin. And I think people who don't get the power of that um, are people who are like, we can just forgive anyone, right? Um, they treat that kind of loosely. But no, this is extremely powerful. The grace of God um, is, is like a dangerous thing in a world like ours that wants to see division, to come against that with the reconciling words of Jesus that he himself is one force of the cross is something that the church needs to entrust very carefully to. Because, here's why. People will, um, and we do a general absolution, so I don't go through each person and ask, but to those, and you'll see in other liturgies, for those who are truly penitent, who come before the Lord with uh, sorrowful hearts, like really seeking amendment of life and forgiveness of sins, they're granted that. Um, and then there's another phenomenon, another office of reconciliation that I sit with people um, behind the curtain one-on-one, -on -one, and they say, but I can't shake this. I need to tell you about it, and I need the church to forgive me. I need, I need Jesus to forgive me um, through his clergy person, through his priest. And so that's uh, a rite of confession that we do that's available to any of you. If you ever want to do that, you can come find me after the service or before, and we'll do that for you. So there's confession. There's the words of forgiveness, of reconciliation, and there's the meet and greet. It's actually not a meet and greet, but there, this is where it came from. The peace that God has extended to us, we now turn to our neighbors and extend to other people. This threefold action of confession, reconciliation, and peace is like this, one of the things our world so desperately needs. Again, what amazing act of like counter narrative for the people of God to, to inhabit those rhythms, to get used to saying, I'm sorry, being reconciled, hearing someone say, I forgive you, and then going and extending that peace to other people. If we could become a people like that, the world would be changed, right? Such an amazing thing. All right. The liturgical calendar, the year of the church, goes through seasons that your kids probably know better than you do. Purple and, how's it go? Purple and green, is it green? And red and white are the colors of the year. This is a song that our kids learn in catechism. And um, these, these seasons are actually displayed in our liturgical vestments um, and that you'll see in priests and deacons with the stoles, but also these ponchos that are called chasubles. Um, I should show you the, the prayers that go on that are involved with this. First off, the bottom layer that a priest or a server or really anyone who is ministering is this cassock, which is um, kind of the poor man's uh, long johns, I guess. This is, uh, this is uh, like your typical base layer of clothing that we just, for some reason, since like the 16th century, just decided to like roll with it, keep going with it. Um, it's actually super comfortable. When I go away on prayer retreats, this is like my game jersey uh, to like really get into uh, the, the mode of prayer. And even when I put it on on Sunday morning, it's a really helpful um, act of uh, kind of resetting um, and locating myself in this moment of prayer and presence of God. On mine, it's kind of funny. Anglicans have a good sense of humor. I have 39 buttons, which correspond to the 39 articles of religion that historically have helped uh, define Anglican theology. And if you disagree with any of them, you just can unbutton that one article in protest in a kind of like awesome little British fashion of humor. Austinites don't get it. The second layer of clothing goes on for a priest. Like I was mentioning in my sermon today, this really does look like pajamas, doesn't it? Uh, is this top piece right here? I should just put it on, huh? No, I don't want to put it on. I'll just show you. It's too hot. This is the Amis. This is the article of clothing that I mentioned in the sermon today about the helmet of salvation. And it's basically this rectangle with some shoelaces on it um, that I throw over like this, pretend I have a cassock on, and I'm, I'm praying, Lord, uh, cleanse me, O Lord, and gird, or guard me with the helmet of salvation. And I tie it like this. If you see illustrations of like Levitical priesthood people, they look like this. And then I pull this down and it Functionally, it serves as a way of keeping like my neck oils off of expensive liturgical garments. Um, functionally, it's really what's going on here. But we use it as a way, uh, a discipline of prayer to like actually get ourselves prepared for worship as priests or celebrants. The second thing that goes on 
is this nightgown, and, uh, but it's called an alb. And it is symbolic of, and the prayer that's associated with it has to do with remembering our baptism, that in the waters of baptism with Jesus, we've been purified of sin. And now we take on this pure white garment and join the, the hosts of heaven who, ha, who have entered into the presence of God and are pure and clean because of Jesus. So again, in the morning, I'm like praying as we put these on. Um, then on, around the waist, I'm going to take this thing off. It's so awkward. Around the waist, after I put on that white robe, is uh, this rope, which we call a cincture. And uh, there's a prayer that goes along with this that asks the Lord to gird me uh, close to him as the good shepherd. To like the belt of truth. You remember that from the reading today? This is, uh, there's a similar prayer that goes on with the priest's. Uh, as, they, as they get ready to lead people worship and preach, which is super helpful. And so all of our acolytes and people who are assisting us at the altar, they will wear pretty much all of that, except for that Amis piece. They have a cassock and a surplus, or the kids will wear uh, what's called a cassock alb. It's kind of a combo. It's easy for them to throw it on. It's one layer. It's Texas. So we're merciful with them. Um, and then after we've got all this, the next thing that happens um, and if you've ever been to an ordination service, this is super cool what happens. Um, you'll usually see the ordinands laying in front of the bishop on their face, laying prostrate before the bishop while the church prays a litany for, the, for these poor people. Lord, have mercy on these people as they enter into this holy office of the priesthood. One of the things that they're given is this stole, which is a scarf, basically. Um, but it goes around our neck. And as we put this on, every time we put this on, there's a cross on the back that we kiss and, and as a way of like, again, there's, there's no like magic here. This is all disciplines of prayer to make us aware of what we're doing. Because you can get into this super quick without realizing what you're doing. And that's like, you're, you're missing out on some of like the goodness of this. And so we kiss the back of this and we will pray a prayer that essentially says, Lord, uh, uh, you have given me the yoke of your gospel, that it would steer me a yoke in, in, in like agricultural terms. I'm told, I've never done this, is the big piece of wood that guides two, two animals so that you can plow straight. Uh, well, this is the yoke that is easy and is light that the Lord tells us about that helps guide us in the gospel as we preach. It, there's another, another image for this is, yeah, is the upper room uh, moment where Jesus takes up a towel, wraps it around his waist and washes his disciples' feet. Um, you'll see this in a deacon. They'll wear their stole like this. Um, and act, but actually, there's another item that uh, celebrants often wear. I might have one up here, actually. I think we only have one. Yeah, here it is. It's called a, man, I haven't worn this, a manipole. That's right. That goes over our wrist like this. And this is more obviously that towel that Jesus took up to wipe his disciples' feet, to wash their feet. But the stole, this manipole, these are part of these vestments that help us um, enter into, like, kind of get our game face on. Like, what are we doing here? Well, we are, um, on behalf of the Lord, ministering to his disciples, washing their feet. Uh, so here's the green stole. Oh, and the chasuble, the poncho. Uh, again, at an ordination service, you'll see uh, my wife put my stole on when I became a priest. I remember that day very vividly. Um, and think that that office is actually one that we, in some ways, both carry. And so her contributing to that moment was pretty significant for me. Because believe me, she does carry that with me. Um, but also, the, the next thing that uh, my wife put on me when I was ordained a priest is this chasuble. Not this one, but a red one. At, at ordinations, you'll see red because of Pentecost. That's the season of the Spirit coming down in power and doing something. So at ordinations, you'll see that. And this is basically uh, reflecting the beauty of Christ that we put on. So what you see at this point isn't Sean's beauty or his sense of style or his personality but in a very, trust me, a very relieving way, um, I am like taken out of the mix of all of that. And what you see hopefully is the beauty of Christ in this church, the beauty of the gospel. I, I, trust me, when I was just starting out um, and I had some of these robes on, I was thinking, what, is, what am I doing? This is unbelievable. I can't believe I'm about to like do this stuff with all these robes. Like, what is this? So weird to me. And I remember the Lord saying to me, basically, uh, how else would you have it other than being hidden in the beauty of Christ. And I, I immediately felt the relief of not having to carry the church on my shoulders uh, and not even having to like prove to you guys week after week that I'm 
that I'm like cool enough to listen to or something. I don't know. I mean, I don't have great jokes or stories, but, um, but what I do have, what I'm humbly trying to put before you is the beauty of Christ. That's all I want to do. So this helps me remind me of that and remind you of that. Um, and in some ways, and I mentioned this before, we all put on these chasubles as Christians, right? We all adorn, are adorned by the beauty of Christ in our lives. And this, this garment is designed so that it has a, a function in mind when we come to the table and the priest is praying like this, the whole garment, like it makes sense. It is made for this posture right here, for the praying church, for the priest who's praying. You know, this is called Aram's uh, position, or what, who cares, right? But this is, what, um, this is what this garment is made for. Any questions about this so far? Uh, a lot of this stuff has come from like historical moments of clothing that the church has taken and um, attached like really meaningful stories to or symbolic meaning to. So it's not like it was designed like, oh, let's do this to reflect this theology necessarily. Some stuff was, but there's a lot of it's like, you know what that, you know what that reminds me of is this. Let's make it about that. Awesome. So it becomes this really meaningful symbol in the gospel. Um, here's some of the other colors, the red, again, Pentecost, uh, ordination services, the fire from heaven, ordinary time, the growing time, purple is for Advent and Lent, penitential seasons, preparation seasons, the royal purple, and then white you'll see for Easter, for weddings, um, for Christmas, um, Epiphany Tide, there's like all kinds of good Easter moments. Does that make sense? Right, so if we had like two priests, for instance, um, there is only one celebrant. So you'll see only one person in a chasuble, but the other priests will have the white robe on and his stole. Other deacons will have a white robe on and that deacon's stole. But there's only one celebrant um, who kind of as an icon represents the ministry of Christ gathering us to his table. Yeah, okay, good question. We come to the offertory where the gifts of the people, the fruit of our labor is signified in, the, in this bringing up uh, the collection of the baskets. And it's, it's really a significant time. We sing the doxology, which if you listen to the lyrics of it, is calling not only us to praise God, but it's saying, hey, creation, wake up. It's time to praise God. Hey, heavenly hosts, get your praise on because this is going down. This is the offertory moment. We bring up the fruit of our labor. Um, and if you give online, we do like tokens because we really want to engage in this physical act. They have the presentation of the gifts. You'll see that happen up here. They'll bring up these baskets. I'll hold them and you won't hear me pray this because I'm just praying, but I say, Lord, thank you for every way that you've blessed us. Bless those who give tenfold, Jesus. Pour out your blessing in their lives and use this fruit of our labor to be a blessing for your kingdom that others would know your love. I start, I'm just like, this is like a charismatic moment for me. I'm just going for it. I'm like, Lord, you're so good. Use this um, to bless your kingdom, to further your kingdom. Um, Thomas Ken wrote this doxology back in 1674 for a students, for students at a college, actually, um, which you don't usually hear that and go, that's like a, a youth hymn, um, but kind of that was what it was for at the time. And we use it for this moment in the liturgy. There's this moment where I say, the Lord be with you. You notice I say that a few times in the service, and it is this... Um, it's, it's, a, it's a, a, not only a statement of fact, but also kind of a prayer like, the Lord be present with you. Like he's present with you. May he be present with you. And you all respond, but especially you, Sean, because you're like leading us in worship. And also with you, there's this, or, and with your spirit, which is the, the original kind of, um, who cares? Well, and then I, I'm sorry, I get into these little rabbit holes. And then we say, lift up your hearts, which is called the sorsum corda, literally the lifting of hearts, um, that, was, that came from the 4th century Hippolytus. We see this in the 4th century, Christians were giving this exchange. Lift your hearts. And by the way, we lift them to the Lord. Can y'all not say up to the Lord? Because that's awkward when we're like, you know, people, it's just, sorry, pet peeve. Lift up your hearts. Let's practice. We lift them to the Lord. Awesome. Um, please do that. Help me do that. There's sometimes when uh, during the seasons like of Advent or Lent, when we will celebrate communion on this side of the table, say the Lord be with you and also with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift them to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to give him thanks and praise. And I'll turn again now because I'm praying and I'll come to the altar this way and say, it is right and a good and joyful thing always and everywhere to give thanks to you, Almighty Father, now and forever. So the whole liturgy um, 
is facing, or this moment at the table is facing God the Father with the church. So if you ever see us serving, uh, celebrating Eucharist with our back to you, it's not because we don't love you. It's because we, I am joining the church and acknowledging oftentimes liturgical East, anticipating the resurrection. Uh, we're acknowledging that we are speaking to God together and coming to his presence. But for most of the time, I'm on the other side of this table leading us in this Eucharistic prayer. Um, you'll see in this prayer, and this is so central, everything up until this point does this, but very, very specifically, the Eucharistic prayer is telling you the gospel story. So if you ever invite a friend to church, um, one of the things you can tell them, and maybe they're not a Christian, is to say, um, hey, pay attention, you're gonna hear the gospel story, like pretty concisely put. You can never walk out of the service and not hear the gospel at least, at least three times. So we go through this whole Eucharistic prayer. We get to a place where we kneel and uh, say, holy, holy, holy. You guys know that song that we, play, that we pray? It comes from Revelation 4, 8 that describes the four living creatures. Each of them with six wings are full of eyes and all around within and day and night. They never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And also, Hosanna to the son of David from Matthew 21, 9. And Mark 11 as well. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which is Jesus. Um, like 90% of our liturgy, the words we say are actually just words ripped straight out of scripture and given to us to pray and celebrate. Um, in the Eucharist, you'll see kind of a four-step process happening um, that we see in scripture. Taking bread, giving thanks, breaking it, and giving it. That's kind of the layout of the entire Eucharistic prayer. Um, there are some hand motions. Can you all stand? Are you good to stand now? Would you all stand and come up here? So as you come up here, um, here's your tabernacle image, Stephen. You have the word of God, the word of God written, the word of God incarnate in who Jesus is. So if you look at the table, this is how traditionally we've explained some of the symbols of the table. You have represented the dual nature of Christ, fully God and fully man, they were put here so that people could read, see what's on the page to like light up the table. But we've attached this meaning of like fully God, fully man. Some say it's the runway lights for the Holy Spirit. Um, so you have the gospel book and you have the tabernacle. This is called the verse, fancy word for purse because we actually stick a linen in here and pull it out. And the veil, which we take off in preparation of the table. We put this away. And underneath here is um, a flat uh, thing that we put over the chalice to make sure bugs don't get in the wine. You're welcome. And we'll set the table with a corporal. This is, I want you all to see this because I think this is really fascinating, actually. So think of Jesus in the tomb, okay? He was laid in there with, uh, wrapped in linens, right? And this linen is called a corporal because uh, what does corporal mean? Body. It's what the body was laid in. And so literally, we are putting kind of this space of, in which we're going to place the body. Pretty interesting. We place the blood the body in this, um, this is the patent or the, and the chalice. And I'll take this, uh, this is a purificator, which is just fancy for wiping the, the chalice when you drink from it. And then we'll place this here so that bugs don't get in to the wine. Um, you'll notice there's, this is the last supper on our chalice, the disciples. At the bottom are the four living creatures, the gospel symbols as well. You can, here, I'll actually, you wanna pass this around and take a look at it? Um, up at the table, uh, there are the, uh, something that comes pretty quickly is the words of institution after we do that holy, holy, holy thing. There are the, the words of the Lord, the words of institution that we get from a few places uh, in Scripture. But again, the priest's words cease and the words of Jesus come forward. Like Ambrose of Milan says, the priest no longer uses his own words, but he uses the words of Christ. We get these from 1 Corinthians 11 from Paul. Uh, you would recognize this. For I received from the Lord what was handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was handed, right? The night he was betrayed, um, we enter into this, um, this, uh, these words of institutions of the words that Jesus said at the Last Supper. And after each, uh, after each segment, we'll t Jesus took bread. When he given thanks, he offered to them saying, and then I'll come close to it. Why do I come close? Do you all notice that I do that? It's actually a different tone, different pace. I'll be quieter and I bring it close. Um, it is a way for that's traditionally used to symbolize that when the word of God comes close to the waters and speaks, there's a new creation. Just like in Genesis, 
this new creation thing is happening. And so it's a way for us to engage like the, the words of institution um, being realized and speaking new creation to this piece of bread. Um, and all same thing for the wine. When we set them down, there'll be a moment between each where we will, out of just honestly reverence, I'll set it down. Uh, we'll kneel, they'll kneel with me. They'll stay kneeling, I'll hold it up. People will see uh, the bread and they'll make the sign of the cross. All of this is just reverence. We'll kneel again. And each one of these has a ring associated with it, um, uh, which just is a, a, an audible cue for us to pay attention that something's super special happening. In, historically, um, when we had church bells, people, um, there was not a common cup. One of the things that was brought back in the Reformation, especially in Anglicanism, was a shared cup. The people were to get both bread and wine. Um, it wasn't always so. In fact, for a long time, the church would show you the bread, and that was good enough for I've received Eucharist, seeing it. So the church bells were the, for the guys who were smoking cigarettes outside to poke their head, often in these little cutout holes in the wall, to be able to see the, the greater elevation, the bread and the wine being lifted up. Right. Yeah, cigarettes back then, right? You know, and actually, in some places, it still happens like that. Well, people will stand outside, wait for the bells, and look inside just to see it. There's even times where they'd put uh, the elements on a bell tower and ring the bells so that the whole town could look to it and have received Holy Communion. Not so anymore. We, the bells are still a helpful cue for us, um, but it, it, it is, we're now giving communion in both kinds is what we say. Um, we've been reading in John 6 these really interesting passages about Jesus saying, this is my flesh and this is my blood. I want to talk just for a second about what do Anglicans believe about what this is in reality. Um, we do not believe in transubstantiation as has been kind of articulated in folk um, theologies of like Roman Catholic or others that says that the bread is changed, transubstantiated, substantially changed into flesh and that the wine is changed into blood, like the substance of it, transubstantiation. Um, but we also don't believe in what's called memorialism, which is this isn't really anything but a reminder for us, this memorial, like this kind of mere symbol that helps us uh, recall that this something special happened for us at the cross. Anglicans find themselves somewhere in the middle. Um, we reject both because both overthrow the nature of what a sacrament is. Um, one doesn't uh, participate in the reality in a, a material way, and the other um, overthrows the thing itself and replaces it completely with um, the presence of Jesus. And we want to say, if we look at the incarnation of who Jesus was, his humanity was not overthrown, but he was fully God and fully man. When we look at the incarnation of Jesus, we also see that he wasn't just a symbol of a human being. He wasn't just there to like, as a picture to remind us of God's love. He was truly present. And so Anglicans have a term called real presence that basically says, in the bread and the wine, Jesus is really and objectively present. So no matter what you believe, we believe that he's present um, and in a real way. So um, not just symbolic and, and it's not like, you can look at it, it's obviously not flesh, but still um, very really present. And it's a way for us, real doesn't like, it's not a very precise word, but it actually kind of fights for some space in the middle to say this is a great mystery. And if Jesus says, and I have a quote here, I think, somewhere in here, yeah, check this out. The sacramental realism of the church fathers is total. Christ himself asserts categorically that this is my blood. Who will doubt it and say it is not the blood? Wow, interesting, right? It kind of forces us in this strange place that we can, as Anglicans, reside. Um, this is the bread that's come from heaven. In the Lord's Prayer, which we pray up here, we say, give us this day our epiousius bread, which is a strange word that doesn't appear anywhere else in the New Testament. And if you break it apart, um, we kind of infer from its context and from what it's made of that there's a few meanings going on there. One, it is a daily thing, that it is enough it, that suffices for the day. There's also, it's a compound of epi and usias, which means like epidermis from above or on top of, and usias, which means substance. Um, that is a, what is the substance from, the, the, from above? Give us this day our substance from above. It's actually, I think, a, a, a reference um, to that manna from heaven, which is only lasts for the day and comes from heaven. So give us this day, even in our Lord's Prayer, is this really mysterious combo of word, this, this word that helps us access this mystery of God's presence um, in his daily provision for us. In Leviticus 17, one of the reasons Jews were told not to drink blood is because the life is in the blood. 
which is precisely the reason now that we have Jesus' blood that we drink his blood. Why? Because his life is in the blood. Um, 1 Corinthians 10, the bread that we break, is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? All over scripture, we see this this, uh, contending for more than symbol. This is like something that God is giving to us to nourish our body and soul that we can take seriously and mysteriously at the same time. When we come forward, you'll see people making an altar with their hands to receive it and not taking the bread because we receive the grace of God. It's not something we reach out and grab for ourselves. But even in that act, we can remember, like, who am I to even receive this? But, Lord, you give so freely of yourself. And lastly, um, about the table, it's not an open table, as um, some would call it, but it is a table that people only gain access to when they've been unified in the death and resurrection of Jesus. So it is everyone is welcome through baptism to this table. But there is a a really helpful order in the Exodus narrative through the Red Sea into the land of promise that we want to guide people into that process of being joined with his body so they can come to his table and feed on his body. That's traditionally how um, Anglicans have viewed that. And then lastly, now as living members, as a Eucharistic people, we are unleashed in the neighborhood in public um, to go and participate with God as his body with his real presence in the world. Again, I think one of the most missional things that the people of God can do is come and celebrate, be incorporated into Christ's body, be fed by him, filled with the spirit, and then sent into the world as the real presence of Jesus in our neighborhood. Okay, that's all I have. I'm gonna take some questions. If you gotta run, that's fine. I'm gonna stick around just for a few minutes and answer any questions. It is as well. It is like a, I mean, because we have bells for Easter, like kids, we have like 80 bells in here, right? So it is celebratory as, as well. One of the ways that we kind of strip things bare in Lent is to do away with the bells and the alleluias. So the bells kind of are an alleluia of sorts for us as well. Yeah, good point. Thanks for reminding me of that. Um, it's, it's just, I'm sure someone's written a huge book on like the mind and the chest or I don't know, the body. But it's really that our bodies would receive the cruciform blessing of Jesus. And so we make the sign of the cross on ourselves as a way of marking ourselves physically with the blessings of God. So if you come from a tradition that is used to saying amen and raising your hands, it's that equivalent. Like, yes, Lord. We say, yes, Lord, make it so on this body and on my life. Um, Early on before I was Anglican or really knew any of that, I remember really struggling with in a time in my life, even about um, uh, just kind of going through a crisis of faith. And when my alarm went off, the liturgy that I had, having read this book that my dad gave to me, uh, gave me this idea of marking myself with the sign of the cross before I got out of bed as saying, Lord, today this body is yours. I don't know what's gonna happen, but I'm yours. Those, those kinds of practices are, are meant for us to like, have throughout our daily lives. They're meant to bleed into everything else. Yes, Jeffrey. Depends on which time in Anglican history because actually different prayer book revisions will have um, this table was taken and put into the nave is what this is called in the hallway here and face this way, and the priest was supposed to stand at this end because it was more of a family meal theme. Um, Anglicanism has all this like flipping and flopping, um, but this is kind of a a very um, kind of standard universal in some sense. It's probably the most universal orientation of celebrating communion. And if the whole church could stand up here around the table and do this, I'd be totally down with that. Um, But it's just honestly probably mostly functional. To, to not have it such. But I do love church architectures. Maybe someday when we get to like make these decisions, it'd be great to have the table a little bit further into the people and a little bit more of kind of around, around the table to kind of reflect that, uh, that kind of we're all around the table idea. I love that. What's the gospel book you want to see? Come look. This is uh, the special readings of the gospel that are just kind of laid out for us according to the calendar and has this big cross. And you'll see when I read this, I mark with my thumb uh, and pray, Lord, let your words bless your people. Um, there's, there's stuff throughout the liturgy that I'm doing and all of it is prayerful and honestly asking for God's mercy and his help. That's the gospel. We also have a white one that's in there that we bring out for white seasons. Josh, did you have a question? Yeah, there, um, some churches do, some churches don't. Some churches won't have um, Eucharist every week, even Anglican churches, which I think, you know, I wouldn't prefer that, but some churches do that. And especially in Anglicanism, there's a great deal of hospitality to um, very, what we might call like low church expressions and very, what you would recognize as being like, are these people Eastern Orthodox? High church kinds of expressions. And 
um, what unites us is our, as Anglicans, our common worship. That it, though it takes different forms, um, we're all on the same page praying together in, in like as, as much as possible. We try and actually, you have to actually get permission from your bishop to diverge from what's actually in the liturgy because they want to keep us um, united in worship. Um, the things. So if you want to know what an Anglican believes, um, you go to their prayer book and you read, this is what they believe. How that looks in different Anglican churches is going to be a little bit different. Um, but for the most part, this is all, and the reason that Rez and myself have chosen for us to have this kind of an expression of maybe like tilting high church a little bit is because we value beauty and these, these beautiful sacred, like one of our values is sacred. And so that comes out like screaming in the liturgy uh, we have entered into a sacred space and this beauty helps us enter into the beauty of the gospel. I think when you disconnect the beauty and that sense of sacred from its meaning, you end up with like just really obscure, kind of twisted, um, like piety that's just uh, lost its power, but is just become a, a, an empty ritual of sorts. And you end up having weird things like priests who think they're better than the rest of the laity because they get to wear special robes. There's a stuffy stuff. There's a stuffy side of that, and likewise, there's a there's a stuffy side of people who are like, we don't need any beauty. In fact, let's paint the walls white, get rid of all the distractions, and let's just do what's really important, which is to open up the Bible and read it together, and let's sit in silence and wait for the Spirit to speak. So there's like more of a Puritan side of things, more of a Catholic side of things. The beauty of Anglicanism is that we're trying to take the best of all of those things and find an expression that works in our context, that's faithful to the way that uh, the, to the prayer book. Um, as best we can under the guidance of our bishop. So you'll see some contextualization happening and you'll see the gifts coming through in different ways, but you should be able to walk into Anglican church and recognize the shape of the liturgy and the words uh, that are being said. You should. What else? These are great questions. Oh, yeah. So I, I'll drink everything here and rinse it with water and drink it. The bread that's here will scoop the uh, crumbs into the wine before, before I drink it all and clean that up. If there's a lot of leftover bread or a lot of leftover wine, if we don't drink it or consume it, it's to be buried in the ground. Um, it, we'd, we're not even supposed to put it in a sink drain that doesn't go directly into the soil. It has to be um, dispensed that way. Why? Because we, be, we believe this is the real presence of Jesus and we should care for it. When I was an early Anglican or like going to the churches, uh, the priest knew exactly what he's doing. I wrote an article about this, actually. It was like a conversion for me. He said, hey, Sean, after the service, would you go and bury this? And I was like, what? So I walked around the building, and I was digging with my hand this, like, six-inch grave that he told me to bury. I was putting this bread in there, covering it up, thinking, these people actually believe this is Jesus. And I thought, maybe it is. <laughs> yeah. so, so I still have those moments. And if you have those moments... Don't be afraid of those. They're wonderful moments to say, this is mysterious. Wow, I wonder if it's true. Questions? Anything? Uh, Michelle, you had a question. Oh, yeah, this is the, the old dog collar. Um, you'll see another white one in, I think it was around the 17th century or 1700s, I should say. Presbyterians in a, uh, were the ones who invented this. They flipped it on backwards. Uh, they're collars that most men wore at the time as a way of saying we are people of peace. Uh, so they could talk terms between warring factions, for instance. Um, and it was like a pretty novel invention by Presbyterians who I'm always like, y'all should wear them. Uh, but they don't. They want to wear them, but they, I don't know why they don't. Catholics picked it up. Anglicans picked it up. Um, and what you see in this is really the combo of when you wear that full neckband, which is kind of like the slave's collar. We are, we are bound to Christ as his servants. Believe me, putting this on every day uh, is like a really stark reminder that, like, I belong to Jesus my time is for him. So you can't walk into a coffee shop or a pub and not stick out and be super awkward with this. And I get that. Uh, and I don't necessarily like that. Um, but I think um, it is a helpful way of me not pretending to be like some cool guy who's not really a pastor, but then surprise, I'm a pastor and you've been talking to me this whole time. Um, it is actually a super helpful way for me to be upfront with people like I'm a priest and I represent the church. And I'm sorry that this has meant pedophilia for so many. Uh, but we're going to rewrite that because that's not what this means. Um, and so I realize, trust me, walking with my kids, I get how that looks. Um, but we and a whole generation of new young priests, we get what that means. We're fighting for um, what the beauty of what this needs to be meaning. and We're, we're contending for that. Um, but it is also just a, a, a real fresh, in-your-face kind of 
no strings attached. I'm here, you know who I am. And what's cool is people come up to me and ask me for prayer all the time. Or they'll come up without introducing themselves and just like unload on me. And, or the other day at Kirby Lane, I was, we, we had a meeting and this, lady, this young lady walks by and she goes, hi, Father. And I said, hi. And she walked on and I thought, that's so good for her. Like she's so pumped to see a priest out in public, you know? Um, like the church is in public and it's not tucked away. And that's like a beautiful thing, so... Totally. Thank you all for spending time with us. I'm going to stick around if you have any follow-ups or pushbacks or anything like that. Mario will stick around for that. You're listening to Resurrection South Austin, a community of faith, learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at resaustin.com.